it's extremely hard to be great at quote unquote picking really good companies up front. And so really at a minimum, you need probably 20, maybe 30 investments in a seed portfolio because 50% of them are going to fail. 30, 40% of them may not even raise the series A of subsequent financing. The top 5% of investments may return 10 to 50x. And then the 0.1% may return 100 or 1,000 times even. Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview entrepreneurs, investors, and CEOs who are their personal stories and advice for high school and college students on how to become successful in the business world. In this episode, we're joined by John Brocious, who's an investor at a venture capital firm called Mucker Capital. Mucker Capital focuses the majority of its investments on the pre-seed, seed, and Series A rounds of funding. Here's the interview. Hi, John. So great to have you on the show. Absolutely. When I was doing a little research on who you are and what the show should be about today, I was on your LinkedIn and I was kind of stalking your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you were the captain of the baseball team at Princeton. Is that true? Many years ago, almost a decade and a half now. Yeah. What position did you play? I pitched a little bit and then played right field and first base. Was a power hitter, hit a fair amount of home runs, but struck out a lot as well. Kind of knew in college I was going to hang him up. So let's get right into it. What is Mucker Capital and what do you do at Mucker Capital? So Mucker Capital started about 12 years ago in Los Angeles by Will, Stu, and Eric Granala. They had worked together back in the dot-com days. We're both entrepreneurs that spent, you know, the first formative, first 15 years of their careers in Silicon Valley, moved down to LA. And, you know, at the time in 2010, 11, there weren't too many venture capital funds in LA. It was, you know, kind of contrarian to bet on LA as a breeding ground for tech. Of course, 12 years later, we've seen that LA has been an incredible market for tech and with Snapchat, Service Titan, and a number of other companies. But at the time, you know, it took some time to raise the funds and first few funds did really well. And, you know, we're now a full organization seed fund. We're on fund six, that's $80 million intentionally kept pretty disciplined in terms of size. And then our early fund, which is our third vehicle, is $225 million. And what kind of companies does Mucker Capital invest in? Is it just any very early stage startups or is there a more specific thing that you look for within startups to invest in? So I'll focus on kind of stage and industry. Stage-wise, we're pre-seed, seed, and post-seed investors, basically everything kind of leading up to the Series A round. We are industry agnostic, which you saw a lot of seed investors were industry agnostic starting, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. The seed market really didn't start until 2006, 7, 8, you know, with the cloud and, you know, being able to start a business with, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars versus having to buy servers and spending three, four, five million dollars. But we're industry agnostic. You know, that being said, we don't spend a lot of time in pharma or space. And there's certain areas that you know, we're not going to invest in pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of specific investors that invest based off of phases and progress. That being said, I think where we do spend a fair amount of time is software. It could be B2B or B2C software, marketplaces, things tech and a smattering of consumer as well. So Honey, which probably a lot of folks use was, I wasn't with the team at the time, but Will and Eric wrote the first check into Honey and Will's still on the board of Service Titan. Service Titan is now a $10 billion plus company and there's a few others as well. And then what I meant by pre-seed seed and post-seed investing. So we can clarify a bit more about Mucker and Mucker Labs versus the funds, but you know, pre-seed is anything, you know, maybe the products build, you know, go to market is not really in place yet. Folks are just getting to market. Go to market, meaning there's a sales motion and way to acquire customers. You know, a lot of times that starts with the founder and it scales as folks move to, you know, the post-seed and series A stages. Seed investing, usually there's a little bit of revenue, products working. Sales motion is still relatively nascent. You know, maybe folks have 20, 
thousand in monthly recurring revenue or MRR, which is a software revenue term. Um, and then post seed and Series A, you know, Series A usually means that there's product market fit with the company, and so that's usually when the unit economics look pretty solid, where you can really kind of pour money into the company to continue scaling out the sales team. Different unit economic metrics like net revenue retention and cost acquisition and lifetime value and CAC payback. And for us, post seed is we feel like the company is approaching product market fit, but maybe they're not quite there yet. You've seen the evolution of not just seed to Series A investing, pre-seed and seed and post-seed, mango seed, uh, larger seed rounds, three to five million, just as the asset class has started to differentiate in the last few years, five, 10 years as well. And you said Mucker Capital doesn't really look at the industry that businesses are in, but you all spend a lot of time with software companies. Is that because software companies have generally higher multiples or what's the pull of software companies that you think makes them especially good to invest in? I like unsexy, lagging industry software solutions. And increasingly, it's solutions that aren't necessarily fit in a box. They don't have to be software. For example, you could sell an agricultural software product, right? It could be an ERP. It could be a financial accounting tool. You know, it could be a productivity tool for agricultural growers or whatnot. That being said, there's some businesses now that might be marketplaces where there's an exchange between kind of a supply and demand, right? A grower and a buyer. There might be a recurring software fee to it. And they may even process payments, whether or not they have their own payment rails. So you're starting to see some blends of business models. But generally speaking, what I say is like, I like investing in vertical SaaS, vertical software as a service in lagging industries. So think of construction, manufacturing, industrial, agricultural, healthcare. You know, there's a number of businesses I've invested across those industries. And some of those industries I knew a bit from my operating days. Some of those industries I've studied and, you know, developed theses around. But, you know, at the end of the day, with seed investing, you're still really investing pre-seed and seed, you're still really investing in the founder and the founding team. So while we've done market research, a lot of times we want a founder to wow us of, hey, we didn't think about that, right? And then, hey, you've also got a pretty good plan of attack in terms of your sales motion. We'd love to come along for the ride and support you and help build out your sales motion, your go-to-market strategy. A lot of times the quote-unquote ideas are things maybe we had studied a little bit and we think this founder is best positioned to execute on that idea. And oftentimes it can surprise us. So part of the reason why we stay industry agnostic is because we never want to say, hey, we just met a great founder, but it's not an industry we invest in. We still want the ability to invest in that person. What makes specifically unsexy software companies especially good to invest in? What's your thesis around those companies? I think there's a fair number of investors that invest, you know, B2B software and whatnot. But this gets back to the first part of your question. Comps are typically a little bit higher in software businesses. So if you look at public multiples for software stocks, they oftentimes trade at 7 to 12 times next 12 months revenue. They were trading even higher a year ago. We thought too high. And the private markets, particularly in the growth rounds, were marking up businesses way too high. That's one of the reasons. I think the other reason is we're investing across a 6, 8, 10, 12-year horizon. And so a lot of times enterprise software companies, they don't scale like an Uber. Or excuse me, they can scale, but they don't grow as fast as, say, a Snapchat or an Uber or a Facebook. Right? We're not investing in a lot in those big, bold consumer businesses. Right? A lot of that's the valley. But you know, enterprise software businesses also have a multitude of potential downstream buyers. So you have private equity firms, you have strategic 
strategics, you have the public markets. And so there's instances where, you know, some of these businesses take five, seven, 10 years to get to 20, 50, 100 million in revenue. And there's a wide range of exits, you know, and if they can get to $100 million in ARR annual recurring revenue, they can go public, can go public for, you know, more than a billion dollars. But sometimes it can take them a little bit longer than say the sexy consumer apps, right? That it kind of boom or bust very much more of kind of the valley mindset of some of the valley mindset of, of investing. The age-old question that I've seen on my podcast when I interview VCs is it's hard to determine whether or not you're actually good at VC because of the time frame in which you have to invest because it's so long. What's your opinion on investing in super long time periods and how do you know if you're good at investing? Like, how can you tell earlier? That's a great question. And I would say I take, you know, mid-30s, but I'd say I take a bit more of an older school mindset to venture investing. I still view venture capital and investing broadly, right? Even in private equity where your feedback loops may be more like five years versus 10 years. I still view this business as an apprenticeship and learning from good mentors and partners, which I learned from Mike and Bill and Kevin at Social Starts, Strance and Strance Partners in Ataraxia, and which I'm learning a ton from Will and Eric and our growth team here at Mucker. So it's been about six or seven years since I've been in venture. And I'd say this is the moment where last couple of years up to this point and you know, in the next couple of years is where I'm starting to get feedback loops, right? Six, seven years later. Some good software businesses that are over 10 million in ARR in three to five years, some consumer businesses that are doing 50, 100 million plus. You know, we made a few investments in some consumer companies, both at Search Starts and Mucker that are at the 50, 100 million mark. So, look, you know, we have a basket of investments and not everyone's going to be a great outcome, but you can get some feedback in three, five years at how these businesses are scaling. But there's still some unknowns of how they'll actually exit. And so, you know, at the seed stage, you really do need, maybe we can talk a little bit more about this, you know, good portfolio diversification and, and management. You know, it's not like you're investing in a pre-IPO company where, you know, there's a one in two or one in three shot that you're going to, you know, appreciate your IRR profile is a little bit different at seed and, and how you think about kind of investing across, you know, 30 to 60 investments across the seed, seed fund. And so what do you look for in a company when you invest? The pre-seed and seed stages, there's not much revenue to go off of. There's not many metrics, right? I'll focus this more on the pre-seed and seed side. With our early fund, we do look at some leading indicators, though, like unit economics, net revenue retention, CAC payback, CAC, LTV, stuff like that. That business may still only have a million dollars of ARR. So it's not like we can really analyze the financials. I mean, there's some leading indicators we can look at. So that's the early fund. The pre-seed and seed stage, you know, it's an art. It's an art more than a science, right? I think some of the inputs that we look for are folks that we think are good stewards of capital. So if we're going to invest, you know, a million bucks, they don't go in the next month and spend $200,000 a month and they're out of money in six months, right? They've got a plan. You know, the financial forecast that they might put together, it's more about us understanding how they're thinking, how they're thinking about leading the company, what hires they need to make, how they need to build out their sales team. So one is kind of stewards of capital. Two, I'd say it's like the idea and the plan for the execution of the idea, because an idea is just an idea, how they're going to go execute against it. And that can change. We know it could change. Companies pick it at the earliest stages too, and how they're going to go execute on it. Sometimes when there's an idea that we know a little bit about the industry, say, wow, that's a really clever approach to how they want to do things, right? We see a lot of companies doing similar things, right? And so I don't think of venture as pattern matching. There's a lot of pattern matching that can lead to groupthink or trying to invest in the hot areas at the time, whether that was crypto or generative AI right now. I try to stay away from all the pattern matching. But that being said, there's a little bit of pattern matching and thinking about a business you've heard multiple times that doesn't have a different 
differentiated go-to-market. And so we're trying to find those outliers. And, wow, that's clever. That could potentially work. And they've got a really good plan for execution. The third thing that I like is, you know, we invest in first-time founders. We invest in repeat founders. But someone that it doesn't even have to have been like a venture capital-backed business, but has been entrepreneurial, has maybe a little bit of, I hate to use the word hustler mindset, but just, you know, maybe sold, you know, they're 14 years old and they were started their own business, right? You know, stories that can be pointed to that, I think oftentimes are good leading indicators for someone that wants to go spend a lot of time building this business. Because the thing we want to avoid is, look, there's companies that don't end up making money, don't find product market fit, but we want people to keep trying different things, right? We don't want people to be like, oh, that didn't work. 12 months later, we're done. You know, we want people to pivot. We want people to try different things. And so, you know, if someone's really locked into their idea, not about making money, but about changing this industry or the world, like there's a certain sequence of questions that you can ask to really try and uncover that. And so we try and do that too. It's very conversational pre-seed and seed investing, right? It's it's not hop on the phone and let's go through your financials, right? More growth equity or private equity, right? And so we're trying to find a basket of founders that are doing things like that, right? And supporting them across their journey. And there's a few other things too, but I'd say those are kind of the three major ones, but it's definitely more of an art than a science. At your stage, as you've mentioned, because there's not really many metrics to look at, you oftentimes look at the CEO and their characteristics. What are great characteristics of CEOs or what are characteristics that you've seen as a pattern within successful CEOs? Yeah, I mean, I think a willingness not to back down. I mean, I've heard, I think, uh, a fun here, Tom Ball has mentioned, like, I think his term is like glass eaters, folks that just, they're going to get constantly pounded by bad news. And so how do they respond to controversy? You've got to spend a little bit of time with folks, but you also don't know it right away, right? I mean, it's not like we have three to six months to like spend time with these founders up front before the investment. Of course, we spend a lot of time with them right after we invest with them. Other attributes, they're team players, you know, there's a lot of good individual performers or maybe have managed one person, but I mean, the CEO's role is pretty interesting interesting, right? I mean, you know, they can be technical, they can be non-technical. And it's rare that like someone's great at products, engineering, sales, hiring, everything, right? They know where their blind spots are and they know how to hire or they eventually can hire to go fulfill those blind spots. So, you know, a lot of times we do like CEOs with founder-led sales and then the ability to translate and figure out how to hire that sales staff. But if they figured it out, they're going to be able to translate it well to the next person and to the next team. So you see the evolution of kind of founder-led sales or product or, you know, technical expertise evolve into then eventually managing a small team of say 10, 15, 20. And then there's another step where if you go from 20 to 80, right? You don't probably know all the new hires that are coming in, right? So you're trusting your management and, and the folks that you hired there. So CEO's job is to evolve pretty quickly once they've cracked the nut on sales themselves and built out a sales team and gotten a product market fit. So what's an example of a recent investment that you made and how did that process go of finding out about the company all the way up until investment? I'll talk about one from a couple of years ago. At the pre-seed stages, there's not a company like say PitchBook or Crunchbase or you know a lot of times you hear about companies and people starting companies, it's a person, right? It's someone maybe that you know through a weak network or that knows about Mucker that might reach out or you get a referral from another entrepreneur. So I got a couple introductions to this person who's now become a friend, but the original company was Archetype. It's now Pinnacle Realty Advisors. Same story, they entered Mucker Labs or he entered Mucker Labs about two years ago. And so what they're doing is creating a agent broker model for residential where it's not 
a broker model like a compass or like a traditional real estate unit that you'd think agents are really acting independently, but have a bunch of resources through this entity and they get to keep their full commissions. So a lot of times if you're part of a brokerage model, you'll end up paying 20, 30% of the commissions you make into the entity for legal help, for marketing, for all these sorts of things. And so Sam's trying to build and create a model where agents get to keep a little more of the pie and he's able to provide resources and they pay in a small subscription monthly, which they sell two or three homes, they end up making a lot more money because they get to keep all their commissions. And so he's now building a bunch of different resources that they can plug in to make the model even more attractive for agents to join. So when we first invested, he actually didn't have any agents as customers. He did a small acquisition of a few customers and you know went from kind of 10 agents to 30 agents you know, across a six-month period and started building the product and the offering and marketing to agents. And he's now up to about 500 or so and had kind of a seed Series A raise here about six to nine months ago. He's up over 500 agents doing a few million dollars at least a year. And you know that was a pretty cool pre-seed investment in a person, had a great idea, worked at a startup and sold a traditional brokerage to Compass way back when and you know had a good vision for what the future agent model could look like. And it's not necessarily dominating, trying to work with all agents across the world, right? But it's finding a niche and executing against that, you know, state by state. And after two years, I think that's a great sort of outcome, right? Like having raised that kind of growth series A round and he's profitable. He's not burning a bunch of cash. So he's a great steward of capital. He was really passionate about the industry, uh, not just to make money, but to kind of change how agents think about different opportunities they can join. So, you know, touches a lot of the attributes that were the inputs that we look for and when we're backing folks. But yeah, I mean, when we first invested in him, it was pre-product, pre-revenue, pre-everything. Love to jump back to your role after investment. And you talked about how you guys focus on mainly sales and going to market. So could you just touch on your role after investing? So Mucker Labs, which is somewhat of an accelerator studio hybrid, is core part of our kind of pre-seed and early investing strategy. Um, we also invest at the seed stage, you know, typically up to a million, maybe a little more, and then three to five million at the early fund stage. But with Mucker Labs and, and with our seed funding, we actually have growth marketers in-house on our payroll, which is pretty unique and a differentiator, I'd say, from other funds. Of course, you know, I've gotten to work with a lot of businesses, but I'm not a growth expert, right? Where I can get into the nitty gritty and I can talk a little bit more about you know what some of the growth marketers do. And Will and Eric are also product folks and work with a bunch of companies. And between Will, Eric, me, and other folks on the team, we also support folks on the go-to-market and sales mission. But we actually bring in some of our growth marketers to get into the nitty-gritty. And what do I mean by that? So there's a lot of work on an ICP, is called an ideal customer profile. And a lot of times that's a discovery process, right? You've got a product you want to sell, you've got a hypothesis, maybe you validated the market or the research in terms of there is a need for it, but it could change, right? So for example, you might say, hey, I want to go target large corporations with this particular product offering. But you might find out that employees or corporations with 300 and 500 employees are a better fit. There's a shorter sales cycle time. There's better unit economics, right? So you can start pivoting on that. But the only really way you know that is testing it, right? So the work that some of these growth marketers do is they help set up the CRM infrastructure to automate outbound. They help use different tools like Finibuster and Apollo and ZoomInfo to figure out a group of potential customers to reach out to. They'll work on the drip sequence for uh, marketing through email. Maybe there's an outbound sales call strategy and there's different vendors that we can use there. They'll work on what we call kind of persona work, right? Like figuring out the scripting, uh, the best method to acquire them, and then actually measuring that from an attribution perspective. We'll, we'll also basically figure out the process, the sales funnel process. So, you know, how do we get a list of what we call or what folks call MQLs, marketing qualified leads? How do we convert them into sales qualified leads? How do we try and maximize the number of demos that we're getting from sales qualified? 
qualified leads and then how do we close as much business? And what I've found in working with a number of companies and I've learned a lot from the growth marketers as well as Will and Eric is oftentimes that funnel is not just entirely broken. If it's entirely broken, then the product that we're selling to the customer might not be the right one. But there might be instances where your demo to close is a little bit lower or you're generating a lot of SQLs, but you just can't convert them to enough demos. And so fine tuning a lot of those percentages from MQL to SQL, from SQL to demo and working, whether it's tweaking scripting, whether it's split testing on the website, whether it's A-B testing, different messaging, you know, it's an iteration. It's a lot of little small things that end up working out, hopefully, in scenarios. And as that funnel is optimized, that's a way, and you're acquiring customers profitably, that's a way, a closer way that you can eventually get to product market fit. Do you have any resources that you'd recommend to kids my age to learn about VC or business or investing? And resources can be anything from podcasts to books to essays to articles. Anything you can think of? Venture deals is what I recommend to a lot of first year become students, venture fellows. It's great from the lens of both, you know, learning different terms in venture deals, how VCs think, how entrepreneurs can think. Every single term that you'd see in a potential term sheet is in there. So I think it's a great starting point because you can use that to be like, oh, okay, like here what anti-dilution rights are, right? Here's what vesting is, right? Like, you know, how to kind of set up the inputs of your business and how to negotiate with venture capitalists. And you start realizing like VCs, particularly the early stage, aren't like, well, there's some that can be predatory, but there's a kind of standard set of terms that they're trying to align to maximize the best outcome for all shareholders. And so there's non-market terms, which you should like look out for, but there's, you know, typically a lot of like standard terms. And so I think that's a good place. Of course, you need another 30, 50 reps of negotiating and seeing different things. You know, there's still some things I see people like asking questions about documents and it's the first time I've seen it, right? And that's six years later, but you know, you can start getting 80, 95% of, you know, what you see in negotiations, you know, after doing it and after reading. So the venture deals, I think is great. Curating a list of Twitter personas, profiles, right? Oftentimes they link to, you know, different articles they write or their sub stacks or whatnot, I think is great. I mean, I like a lot of the stuff Bill Gurley, I really, really like. He's an investor in like OpenTable and Uber and Stitch Fix, Benchmark. And I really like his stuff because he has, I think, a great blend of early stage mindset of like what makes marketplaces really interesting, right? Like the Series A stage, all the leading indicators, some of the leading indicators I was talking about, right? Like, hey, there's potentially some network effects. But he also, came from the, the financial industry. So he was on tech startups in late 90s. So he comes at it from a very financial point of view. And he's very rational, a pragmatic thinker, but also aspirational in terms of a lot of the early stage metrics and leading indicators he's looking for in terms of backing companies. And there's a bunch of others too, you know, in the Valley, in New York, Fred Wilson's blog, I think AVC is great. He's been an investor for 20, 25 years and USV is pretty incredible. I mean, you know, there's very few venture capital funds that four to five times net their return across three subsequent funds. That goes back a little bit to like picking is hard. And even if you have one or two great funds, you might not have a third or fourth great fund. So that's another resource. And, and there's plenty more. I mean, if folks have questions, you know, they, they can obviously reach out. Happy to share more. Awesome. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening. And please make sure you follow Studying Success to get notified when new podcasts come out. Also, please leave a review and send the podcast to your friends and family to show them what you learned. It would greatly help the show. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success. 